Before we get started with this episode of 80 Proof Politics, I just wanted to take a minute to say thanks. You know, when we launched back in early June, we had no idea how many people would be interested in a podcast about federal advocacy. But I am thrilled to tell you that this week we passed the 1,000 mark. What's even more remarkable to me is that 80 Proof has gone global. We now have listeners from coast to coast in Canada, as far away as Thailand, Bolivia, France, the UK, and even the Kingdom of Jordan. I also want to tell you that there are just three episodes remaining in Season 1, and then we're going to take a bit of a break to distill a new batch of 80 Proof for you. So in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future guest birds or any topics that you'd like to hear about, send us your ideas at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com or tweet them at 80politics. And if you're an advocate or you work with an organization that wants to get your message out via 80 Proof Politics, get it disseminated to our broad base of listeners, sponsorships are available. And again, contact us at 80proofpolitics at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening. Enjoy the show. I stayed at Marquette, um, got a master's degree at Marquette, and I got a master's degree in British and Irish history. And I can tell you this, there's nothing that's less likely to get you a job than getting a, a master's degree in British and Irish history. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're broadcasting today for the Boxcar Tavern at 224 7th Street Northeast. It is a great spot that, while it opened in 2011, it's old school charm, it's 18th century saloon decor, might lead you to believe that it's been open ever since they laid the first brick at Eastern Market, which is right across the street. They've got a vibrant happy hour every weekday from 4 to 7 with drink and food specials. they got one of the best brunches on Capitol Hill on the weekends. And the owner, Andy, wants me to tell you about their NFL specials. Throughout the regular season, Anytime there's a game on, they'll have drink and food specials. So that's Sunday night, or Sunday, Sunday night, Monday, and Thursday. Plus, I've found this a great place to stop off on the way to a Nats game if I'm coming from downtown or Capitol Hill because it's convenient, it's away from the crowd, and it's easy to get to the park from here. Well, the reason we're here today is our guest Bert, John Fury, works just around the corner. John, welcome to 80 Proof, and cheers, brother. Hey, cheers, brother. I hope the traffic wasn't too bad getting over here. Very tough foot traffic, but I was able to get here in about three minutes, which is great. Isn't it amazing how much Eastern Market has changed over the years? It's so? incredible. When I first moved to the Hill in the early 90s, 
this was an outpost uh, surrounded by all kinds of bad things, but now it's in the middle of probably one of the most thriving communities in all of uh, all the country, maybe all the world. Yeah. Capitol Hill is an amazing place to live. It's an amazing place to raise your kids, uh, and amazing place to get drinks at place like places like Boxcar. Yeah, I can't agree more. You know, Zelda and I lived at Eighth and C our first year here in town, and this next door was an old school and. If it wasn't happening at Eastern Market with their farmer's market and all the flea market stands, there really wasn't a reason to come over here. I mean, Ton of Cliffs was around, a few other spots like that, but man, now I would live here in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's actually um, remarkable that old school was uh, really old and um, not the greatest place to kind of hang out, although that's where I used to vote back in the old days. Uh, they tore the school down and now built up uh, condos, which are way too pricey for guys like me. And they have uh, really neat uh, restaurants and a great place to get ice cream if you are into ice cream. I saw that. <laughs> well, John is partner with EFB Advocacy. And I want to start by asking you to explain what EFB does on behalf of your clients. And, and I noticed that in the website you described the firm as being at the intersection of politics, policy, and the press. And that's not a combination that a lot of firms offer around town. Well, what we try to understand uh, when we advocate is that advocacy these days is not just about going to a member of Congress and asking for something. You have to really kind of create a, a, a whole ecosystem Messaging is so important these days. I mean, members of Congress don't, it's not like the old days where they would kind of get into the details of legislation. They need to be, they need to be moved uh, emotionally by uh, a bigger narrative. And so we help create narratives. And the narrative that we have to sometimes you have to create is especially with the media. Media these days have a outsized role in the legislative process. And if you don't have the right message and don't have the ability to go to the media and tell them your story, you're probably not going to have much success on Capitol Hill. It's just kind of a, a sad but true uh, fact that we live in, in this this kind of environment. And when you're talking about media, I assume you're talking about all walks of life, from, the, from old school, traditional, the big dogs, to now you have to think about a social media presence for your clients, don't you? Well, that's one other thing that we try to create for folks, is not just uh, talking to the old-time uh, New York Times or Washington Post, but really creating your own social media presence. You know, we say that you you can approach the media, but you can also make your own media. And social media is a, a really good way to get messages out, creating your own videos, creating um, your own narratives. Um, in many ways, creating your own um, blogs. Um, we have a we, we create podcasts for people, uh, not as successful as 80 Proof Politics, well, but we, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but we have great podcasts, and we our our view is you got to hit all the different different angles to get uh, influencers to buy your story and then to get policymakers to take your message and, and, and move forward on the legislative uh, priorities. Yeah, and you and your partners obviously come at this from a lot of experience and a very diverse experience on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, for instance, you're a, you have a column in the Hill. You're a regular on Sirius XM. I hear you on the POTUS channel all the time. You're on CNN. You even do hardball. Right. Yeah, I, 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 but you do. You mentioned podcasts. You are the creator and host of a very popular podcast called The Fury Theory, where you and your partners John Easton and Alan Belmer, the E and the B of EFB, can take a look at the trending, hot politics, the topics of the day, and you dissect it both from the relevance of the the episode or the politics, 
but also the efficacy of the message that's being presented. That's that's engaging. Well, thank you. I uh, thank you for listening and watching. It's a, it's also it's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Facebook, um, and we also post it on YouTube and uh, anywhere else that you can see things. We also get it on iTunes. But the whole point of it is to bring my two partners in. And uh, Adam Belmar is a former television producer. He worked at ABC News. He not only uh, is a guest on my podcast, he also is the producer. And then we have uh, John Easton, who uh, was former chief of staff to Gordon Smith and uh, Kelly Ayotte. So he brings a kind of a Senate perspective. I, I'm a House guy, having worked in the House leadership for 15 years. Um, and I, I'm kind of a press secretary, Easton chief of staff, um, Belmar, kind of a television producer. And we try to look at all the issues from those three kind of distinct perspectives um and you know i think it's a, it's it's engaging we also we've had many members of congress on our podcast we bring in members of we uh, pollsters we bring in journalists um and you know we would love to have you on bill that would I'd be love great to. yeah thank you so I, it looks like you do this in a studio in your offices we have a studio in our office um we have uh we, we have a backdrop with the Capitol, um, which we just put up, um, and it's all in, done in-house. And, you know, what we find is it's, it's a kind of a way to market, but we actually really enjoy talking about the issues. We enjoy having these conversations, uh, and we always tinker with the podcast. Sometimes we make it longer. Sometimes we make it shorter. When I first envisioned the podcast, what I really wanted to do was have kind of the sports junkies, except talking about politics. Um, but we found that some of these podcasts, you just need to be make them shorter. I mean, if you go longer than 30 minutes, people lose interest. Yep. So we, we keep working on, on and tinkering with it. But it's a lot of fun, and it's kind of a, um, like anything else, a little bit of a vanity project for us. Yeah, well, that, you, know, you just described data proof politics. Right <laughs> exactly, there. exactly. Do you ever put that studio to use for your clients? We do. Uh, we've done lots of uh, uh, different videos there. We once produced a, an ad where we had actors come in for uh, – a different um, for a, a pack uh, ad. Um, we we do all our production there, and uh, we have you know all kinds of different events for our, our clients. Um, and so you know, I think our clients like it. You know, the thing is that a lot of Washington offices are very nervous about engaging with the media. They're very nervous about uh, having even talking about lobbying. But uh, my view is that if you're gonna if you're going to try to advocate, you need to be very transparent in what you do. You need to be really honest. And you need to, um, I think that ultimately policymakers like that. And I think the media likes if you're honest with them. If you're kind of trying to be, uh, trying to pull one over on people, I think it always backfires. Yeah. You, you mentioned PACs. So one of my previous guests got into this topic as well, particularly this fashionable at the moment uh desire or statement from candidates to hold off and not take corporate PACs, and yet they're out there soliciting from the same contributors and the providers of those PACs. But what is your view of political action committees? You know, I think political action committees are a reform. They were initially a reform from the 1970s. What they provide voters is easy access to knowing who's giving to who and why they're giving, and also puts limits on the contributions. So anyone who's given to a PAC understands that PACs do not have enough punch to buy any election. What they do do is they give um, the business community especially an opportunity, uh, and labor unions as well, an opportunity. Well, PAC started to, with labor unions, Exactly. Right? Um, to get, give an opportunity to get access to a member of Congress and to make their case. But no politician in the right mind is going to take PAC money and then make a policy proposal. 
ultimately, they're in the legislative process, there are always a clash of interests. There's always, for example, if you want to get rid of all plastic straws, on one end, you have people who, you know, find plastic straws to be really, really important to their um, well-being, you know, restaurants or dis the disability community, and you have to have both those sides get get understood. And policymakers, you know, sometimes they they use this uh, PAC money as a way to w solicit ideas and try to figure out how to make the legislative process work better. But the most important thing about PACs is they provide transparency. And what the voters really want is the ability to know who's given to who and what kind of impact they're having on the legislative process. Yeah, most voters don't appreciate the extent to which PACs have to file on a regular basis, report every contribution from employees and every dollar that goes out the door to candidates. And there are strict limits on what you can do with it. There are strict limits on what you can do with it. And the problem is these days you have these super PACs where you have billionaires really trying to buy elections, um, or not even buy elections, get their kind of their views suffused in the legislative process. Yeah, it's a really to, big microphone. Isn't it's, it? it's a big microphone. If you have, if you know, if you give five thousand dollars to a corporate pack, gives five thousand dollars to a candidate, that doesn't get any attention. But if you give them a million dollars in a campaign, that's going to get their attention. Or two million dollars. Some of these billionaires are giving. 10 to 20 billion dollars. Yeah, or they're creating a surround sound with all that money that's clearly aimed at get driving some initiative or agenda. I think of someone like a Tom Steyer, who is the billionaire who announced he's running for president. His whole thing is he wants to impeach Donald Trump. And so he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this whole idea of, of impeaching Donald Trump. Another guy, Michael Bloomberg, he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars to ban guns. You, know, you may or may not agree with that banning guns, but you know that this is something that the American people should be engaged in and not just one billionaire from New York City. Well, let me circle back, if you would, to working with the press and media in particular. I have a vision that what you're doing on behalf of your clients in that regard is sometimes offense and sometimes defense. Do you guys get into crisis management? We do get in crisis management. Um, you know, my view of the media has changed over the years. Uh, I've always knew that they were kind of left-leaning, um, but they have this kind of view of the of the president that is, you know, a little bit beyond that right now. It's a very ad advocacy-based. That being said, I have so many members of the media who I've had such a great relationship with for so many years. I've worked with them on providing them information when I work for the speaker, giving them kind of, okay, what's going to happen? And going on offense sometimes trying to get stories published that were, you know, probably good for us, bad for them. Uh, but also, you know, also taking in incoming. I was joking with my, my colleagues today that when I worked in the, in the, in the media world uh, for uh, Speaker Hastert, I had to expect just about every day at 5.40 on a Friday getting a negative story coming my way from the media and say, hey, could you, would you comment on this? And it would really kind of screw up your weekend. Um, but, you know, through that, if, you, if you're honest with, on your approach and you are honest about returning phone calls uh, and if you agree to disagree on ideology but try to get the basic facts out there, you can establish a really good rapport with the media, and I've used that to help my clients get stories or help kind of provide more granularity or more facts to a story that they're writing. Um, and I would assume that's often the case because my limited experience with media has been that they're not going to buy a story you're selling if it's not a good story or it's not in their the design of what they're trying to write. Well, I think that's right. Um, now, ultimately, sometimes you can talk 
reporters out of writing a bad story. Yeah, there's a lot of value in that, I'm sure. Uh, and there's a lot of value in that. More likely, what you'll do is try to get them to have a different emphasis on a story so it's not as negative to your client or your boss. Um, but, you know, the most important thing is to try to get try to figure out what they're writing. You know, so many people don't return the phone calls of reporters because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. And what you you're just I always believe believe that being a press secretary working in the in this side of being a flack, the most important thing is intelligence gathering. You're you're trying to in, in get intelligence not only from the media but also from your boss, also from all the other folks and you're trying to get a bigger picture of what's going on you never have the whole picture and you'll never have a complete picture if you don't talk to the media and find out what they're writing only way you know what what they're what they're going to ultimately write is by talking to them and people can't you can't be afraid so in your opinion john how has the president changed that dynamic that relationship with the media um, well, I think a couple of things have changed that dynamic. First is the, the the business model of the media themselves. I mean, they've gone through a kind of catastrophic moment in their history where they basically gave have been giving all of their content away for free on the internet, and they don't really know how to get um, they don't know how to get make money on their stories. So that's a that's a huge problem for them. And so they've they've kind of had to adapt their their media model now because click, this is all about clickbait, and what Trump has done is that, you know, the media doesn't try to co- appeal to everybody right now. They try to appeal to a specific group of people who really enjoy what they're hearing from from that media. So you even heard it from the New York Times. You know, they Dean Bank- Bankett, who's the the head of the New York Times, said, "Listen." If we're not going to talk about impeachment, we got to talk about something else because that's what our our listeners, our viewers, our our readers want to hear. They want to hear how we're going to get Trump, and so it's it's been a and they that's important for them because that's how they grow their circulation. It's not about all the news that's fit to print; it's all the news that the that, that our readers want to listen or, or read. And so that's been a real change. And of course, you know, Trump is ma- a master at creating clickbait. The other thing that's that Trump is masterful at. It used to be that the president would make news, whoever the president was, and then reporters would report on that news, and that's how people would initially hear what was on the president's mind. Not through what directly from the president, but more usually through a the reporting of what the president was saying. The president, through the use of Twitter, goes directly to the to the voters, goes directly to his listeners, and goes directly to the media, and says what he wants to say, and that has changed everything because there's, there's not this, there's not this whole kind of um, screen out there. There's not, there's not a, it, it's 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 undiluted Trump, and undiluted Trump is either a good thing or a bad thing, but it's really put the, it's it's made the press react to him, as opposed to him re- reacting to the press, and it's changed the dynamic completely. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
with this explosion of media over the past 10 years, even more, uh, in many different venues, through many different portals. I mean, I'm carrying in my pocket now a way to keep up on just about everything I care to keep up with. There certainly has been a democratization of press and the media and where people, how people get their news. But is my opinion right that this has also created more of a narrow casting where we start to live in these echo chambers and only click the bait that is enticing to us? Well, I think you see that a lot um, in the decline and fall of the rural or local newspapers. Um, people don't get their news from, from the local sources anymore. They really get their news, especially outside the Beltway, through Fox News. Uh, and Fox News has a – they're a client of mine. Fox News is a client of mine, so I say this very nicely. But they've had a tremendous impact on how people get the news. Um, and so there's narrow casting there. Um, there's also, uh, you know, MSNBC and CNN are going for a much more liberal audience. Their the audience tends to be much smaller um, than, than Fox News. Um, and so there's, there's that impact. And then you have all the rise. I mean, the New York Times and Washington Post have decided to go, we're going to go full for the anti-Trump voter. You know, and they haven't even they, – they, I mean, you can read the Washington Post and see the sports section, and then they'll largely stay away from politics. But everything else is very much anti-Trump because they're trying to get themselves geared towards that narrow casting, as you point out. And there's a feedback loop. I mean, there's no chance really to understand what everybody else is thinking or saying because, you know, there's just like this kind of sense that we're just going to preach to our own choir and we don't want our choir listening to anybody else. So it's a I think it's a, a troubling um troubling time it kind of harkens back to the beginnings of the republic when thomas jefferson had his newspapers and john adams had his newspapers and the federalists and anti-federalists would would go at it and say some of the most very nasty things uh, some of which turned out to be true i mean john adams accused and actually it was alexander hamilton who accused uh thomas jefferson of having a slave mistress and it he turned out he was that was that was not fake news right exactly (laughs) all that was countered by Jefferson's cronies leaking the story of Hamilton's affair. Which well. is also true. We go back, uh, you know, one of the... One of the well, that's why we had the... Why Adams and the Federalists had the Alien Sedition Act, right? right? That was at the heart of that. No, no, no doubt about that. And, you know, that it's from the very beginnings of the Republic. So I, I, I don't... I'm not a doom and gloomer in a sense that we've gone through a lot in our nation's history. It's been it's been a long slog. The idea of an unimpartial press was a brief moment in time. Really, kind of rose up uh, first during the Second World War, and then um, and then after when we were fighting the Russians in the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, where they kind of. Wrote, but even before the, the before the Second World War, you had Robert McCormick and the Chicago Tribune that was virulently anti yeah. anti Roosevelt and right. really very much isolationist. Um, so this is kind of a we had a brief period where someone like a Walter Cronkite could be seen as kind of the dean and, and the arbiter of all truth. But it turned out that Walter Cronkite was actually pretty liberal mm-hmm. and had his own viewpoints and they didn't necessarily he wasn't just telling the facts, he was tell, telling the yeah. facts as he sees them. So the media is it's an important institution. It's some, it needs to be valued, but it also needs to be understood and it's changing. John, you've obviously dealt with that in many different ways, not just with EFB advocacy. You've had a great career after you left the Hill, and you went back for a while and did all that. But 
My gosh, you've been uh, president of communications and director of government affairs at one of the top public affairs firms in town, Quinn Gillespie. I think one of your first stops off the hill was with Barber, Griffith, and Rogers, which right. in its heyday was kind of leading the charge and redefining what an advocacy firm could be. And then you were uh, EVP, was it, with the Motion Picture Association? Yeah, I ran uh, Global Government Affairs and Global Public Affairs for the Motion Picture Association. It was kind of Jack Valenti, who was a great guy, had just left, and he appointed Dan Glickman. Glickman needed someone with the Republican credentials to to deal with a relatively, well, let's put it, really hostile Congress, especially a House majority that didn't really love Hollywood and didn't love the fact that Hollywood... Uh, kept um, hiring Democrats to lobby them, um, and so I, I did both global global government affairs and global um, public affairs. And I th really thought, even back then, that the best way to advocate was to have a robust lobbying uh, presence, but also a really you know robust effort to construct the right narrative. And that usually has to happen through media. Um, coming up with good events, um, coming up with creative messaging, and trying to find the best ways to really deliver that message in all the different tools at your, in your toolbox. So either there at MPAA or at any of your other stops, in your professional uh, career outside of the Hill, was there one or two unique client experiences that either you didn't anticipate or was such a curveball that it was a unique challenge? I think one of the, the most unique challenges, uh, especially when you are um, in a business like I am where you're starting a new business, is it's actually really hard to get clients. Mm. It's hard to get clients, and marketing is really, really important. Um, I think the other thing that you learn is that stuff happens, and you're, you get a chance to work on some really, really big stories. I've One of my clients, when I had my – I left the Motion Picture Association to start my own firm, and – um, I worked uh, on communications when the BP oil spill happened, oh, yeah. and my dad used to work for BP. Uh, he, when he was he was in the oil business, he worked, actually worked for Amoco, and for me it was kind of like, wow, this is a big deal, and it's a, it's 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 a, it's amazing the things that that go on. We had a client once where we it was a, it was the Rate Coalition, and we were kind of dedicated to uh, getting the corporate tax rate more competitive with the rest of the globe. And we hired a uh, Irish actor. Well, he wasn't Irish. He was an American with an Irish accent. And he, he thanked Congress for not reforming their tax code from an Irish perspective because the Irish had the 10% tax, corporate tax rate. And they loved the fact that we had such a high one because all the American companies were going over there. It was a thanks, Congress, for not reforming your tax code. And it was, uh, we, had, we had a lot of fun with Brilliant. it. Brilliant. Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun with it. And well, the, the, the best fun part of it was I, 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 I showed that ad to my friends who work in the Irish media and they put it on the front times of the Irish Times and the number one comment about it was how bad the guy's accent was. That's right. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, Great. yeah, I mean, I, I think that ultimately, you know, if you have fun with the job and you try to be clever, it, it can be very rewarding. And I think that ultimately, you know, you, you got to kind of go beyond your kind of normal stuff and try to be as fresh as possible with come up with fresh ideas. And, you know, if you can offer some different insights, it's, it's, it's great. So I would love to pivot here and talk about your path to glory and how you got started in this town and the great experiences that you had. So let me, let me just briefly run the list, and then you can fill in any gaps that I omit. But you were uh, communications director, minority whip. You were a 
chief floor assistant for the whip at one time at a very uh, unique time in American congressional history when the Republicans took over the majority after decades of being in the minority. You also worked for the man who was the minority leader leading up to that time, Bob Michael from Illinois. Was he your first stop in town? So I, I got to Congress in 1989. Uh, you know, I, I moved from Washington, from Chicago to Washington. I didn't really know anybody, didn't have any really great contacts. But somehow my, my dad knew somebody who knew somebody, and I, I contacted this guy named Bill Gavin, and he was a speechwriter for Bob Michael. And I told Bill, and Bill was a, a great old guy who had been a speechwriter to um, uh, Richard Nixon and also to Spiro Agnew, and he's one of the great speechwriters in history. And I said, listen, I'm Irish Catholic, I'm conservative, I need a job. And he, he looked at me and he said, all right, well, I'll see what I can do. And he, he got me a internship where I became very good at fixing the copy machine. <laughs> and one of my first tasks as an intern, Bob Michael was an absolutely huge Cub fan. And I'm, I'm from the south side of Chicago, and I'm a White Sox fan, and I hate the Cubs. But he asked me once to keep an eye on the Cubs game for him because it was an important series, and he wanted me to watch the Cubs that was my job as an intern. Um, yeah, it wasn't the worst job, but it wasn't the greatest job either because I hate the Cubs. Um, but I did, and I successfully was able to relate to him that the Cubs lost, which gave me great pleasure. Uh, but So I, I worked for Bob for five and a half years, uh, eventually becoming a speechwriter to him. And, and I, I started this group called the Republican Theme Team. And it's a bunch of members of Congress who go to the House floor and give one-minute speeches and special orders and on, based on ba themes. And we first started this as an effort to get George H.W. Bush reelected. And we would write speeches. And George W. Bush came to our meetings. And, you know, we, that's how I got to know him. Okay. Um, and that's not he wouldn't know me very well, but that's, how I, that's where I first met him. And we would write all these speeches. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those things where George H.W. Bush – you know, he, he was probably a very good president, but he wasn't a very good campaigner. And he also, he was focused on the international and not domestic priorities. And the problem is that the voters don't really care that you won a war. They want to know what, you do, what you've done for them lately. Well, Clinton famously exploited that. He famously exploited it. You know, it's the economy, stupid. And um, so I learned a valuable lesson, which was if you're going to be in politics, you got to listen to what the voters want. Not, not what you want, what the voters want. And so Clinton became president. We continued the theme team. Uh, I you know, Let me just stop you there for a sec, because you, you are credited around town kind of pioneering this coordinated one-minute campaign on the House floor. Take a step back and explain to our listeners what a one-minute speech is, in case they don't know. So at the beginning, if you were on C-SPAN, and this is where C-SPAN became kind of an important delivery device. If you're on ever watch C-SPAN, at the beginning of each session of Congress, they give members of Congress an opportunity to speak for one minute on whatever topic they want to talk on. It doesn't have to be, it could be whatever. They could talk. And typically in the past, what they would talk about is something in their local communities. So they would talk about their local Little League team or how Aunt Gertrude did this or, you know, this, this thing. They, they would focus on the community. We kind of changed that because we were trying to come up with a unified message. And so what we found is that the average soundbite is about 15 seconds, maybe a little bit less. And so you spend one minute, it, it's actually a really good way to get on TV if you're really clever. And so what we try to do is we try to kind of set up the soundbite by saying a couple things, have the soundbite and saying a couple other things, ultimately just geared at the media. 
and, and geared at – and we, as you did it enough four or five times in a row, you might hit something. And this is – keep in mind, this is in the days before cable, right? right? I mean, the, the CNN, I think, might have been around, but no one else was, and no one else was paying attention. But the idea was to keep hammering away at certain topics – and we, I remember I wrote one speech talking about Bill Clinton's trips to Moscow, um, trying to implicate, you know, kind of give the uh, impression that perhaps he was a stooge for the KGB. As a matter of fact, I might have had someone say that. I also wrote a speech once for a guy named Cass Ballinger, and he, and he, wrote, he said in a one-minute speech 15 times that Bill Clinton lied. It was, it was good enough speech that we got picked up in the Washington Post, and the Washington Post wrote a whole column about it. And it also changed the rules of the House because Tom Foley and Bill Clinton was not president yet. We, he, was a, he was running for president. It changed the rules in the House. So I feel kind of proud of this to say that not only could you – you had to respect the traditions not only for presidents and for senators and for House members, but that also included candidates for the White House. And so I felt like this my little – uh, you know, uh, my little change to the House rules. And so, you know, for, for me, it was a really, I was a young kid. I was 27 years old. And I had all this power. I'd write all these speeches. I'd have all these members basically, you know, write, you know, read whatever I wanted, very few edits. And for me, it was, it was a tremendous introduction to Congress and also making an impact in the changing Congress. So anyone out young out there, you can make an impact even if you, you know, even if you're young. Did you have that background in college? Were you, were you doing writing and communications and all that? You know, my, I, I was a journalist dropout, and um, I went to Marquette University, uh, and I was in journalism school for a year or two, but I found that the liberal, the media, the journalism teachers are a little bit too liberal for my taste. So I ended up going to, uh, transferring to the history department, which is still pretty liberal, but, you know, what the hell, if, you, you kind of, I love history. And, uh, but I love to, I love to write, and I would always write, uh, all kinds of things in the local newspapers. And then I, I stayed at Marquette, um, got a master's degree at Marquette, and I got a master's degree in British and Irish history. And I can tell you this, there's nothing that's less likely to get you a job than getting a, a master's degree in British and Irish history. And so, um, but I, what it gave me is a great opportunity to do even more writing and learn to write more and give you a great historical perspective of, of, of different things. And... Um, I think that the, the, the history and the kind of deep understanding that I got from, from studying history has been really useful for Washington. And I, well, how so? You know, um, people come to Washington studying poli-sci, and poli-sci is fine. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but there's really not that much of a science to politics. It's kind of it's all personal interaction, and it's all based on history. And um, so many of the great movements that we go through today are based in history. And... You know, you have to. You can predict someone like a Donald Trump coming coming up if you know we are in a historic moment, and um, and history kind of gives you a great sense of 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 the great movements of history, give you a great sense of, of that we've all been through here before. We've all seen these kind of you know um, personal foibles. We've all seen these social movements, and what's past is prologue. But it, it just gives you a, a further depth in, in understanding where you are as part of a movement. Uh, so that requires you to really kind of go out and learn it and read the, 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 all the literature behind it, all the kind of what, what, what happened on that day, read the newspapers, you know, read the kind of the, the, read the history. And so many people just don't do that, and they feel like they're living in a unique time and all, everything's going to 
go to hell in a handbasket. Well, we've we've survived a lot of stuff in this country, and you know I think that uh, things are are not that great now, but they're always not that great. Yeah. That leads me to something I wanted to ask you in this podcast is. To- how do you view politics in this unique moment in time versus either when you started with Bob Michael or you were doing the theme team? Well, I think that the, the, the biggest difference is how things move quickly, quick, quickly now. They move quicker than they ever have. The, the media narratives are moving quicker. The media covers things quicker. Everything is like on a 24-hour seven day a week everyone's constantly churning but nothing's happening so we're moving faster but we're going nowhere it's like a big treadmill and um i think people get really frustrated and i think that they keep going for the the easy thing they keep going for the um they keep going for the the shiny object they they they're not as they're not deep like they should be um so I think that's part of part of there's a shallowness in our culture that lends itself to poor legislating, and I think that's a real huge problem. Um, Where does the role of compromise fit into that difference between then and now? Well, I, you know, and I think that compromise is obviously an important part of the legislative process. It's also not an easy part of the process, and it requires um, stakeholders from various different sides to agree that. Compromise is better. Getting half a loaf is better than getting nothing. Um, and you know, this wasn't always compromise. wasn't always the the case. You think back to civil rights movement and how the civil rights era people didn't really want to compromise back then. And you know, it was really kind of the personal courage of Lyndon Baines Johnson to say, you know what, I'm going to take a political hit here, and we're going to lose the solid South for maybe a generation, maybe two generations, but we've got to do this because it's the right thing to do. You can say that in that region, they were not, they were not happy with, with that compromise. And so ultimately, you know, there's, there's the importance of compromise. You know, I think back to my two bosses, my boss, Bob Michael, and his uh, ability to work with Tip O'Neill. And that was always kind of the famous kind of Tip O'Neill and Bob Michael working together. They would play golf together. They had this relationship. The fact is, is they wanted to beat each other's brains in all the time. Tip O'Neill, you know, gets credit for scheduling um, Ronald Reagan's economic program, but the only reason he scheduled that economic program is because Bob Michael had the votes. I think the I think the, the biggest difference of what's happened over the last 45, 50 years is that the Solid South went from being Southern Democrats to being Republicans. The Republican Party became a conservative party and the Democratic Party became a liberal party. And so it became much more difficult to reach compromise for these two ideological factions. And, um, th- and that's, what, that's only getting worse. I mean, the, the conservatives are becoming more conservative uh, and the liberals are becoming more liberal. But now, you know, the party leaders are trying to become more sophisticated and they're trying to nominate the, the most electable politicians. But, you know, the, the American people have a way of kind of saying, hey, listen, you, you, you might be party leaders, but we're the ones with the power. Yeah. And so the party leaders only act effectively if they're listening to their voters. You know, John, you talked about the value of paying attention to history, learning the history of events, and not getting caught up in this unique moment that we always seem to be living in. What other advice might you have for someone who's coming to town and trying to get started in this policy realm that is D.C.? I think that 
understanding that you can make an impact if you work hard, if you get to have a wide network of people, if you're friendly, if you, uh, early on especially, don't make too many enemies because this is a very small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's, it's very important to, to also know what your talents, where your talents are. Um, some people are good writers, and that's an important quantity. Some people are good organizers, and that's very important. Some people are good at raising money and talking to people. And, but the other thing I would say is get your foot in the door and then work your way through it. And it's important where you get your foot in the door. Make sure that it's, it's simpatico with your, your beliefs. Uh, don't work for someone that you don't agree with. Don't work with someone that you dislike. Is, is that more important than trying to find that perfect job right out the gate? I think it's, it's really, really important to understand what you believe in and then work to pursue those goals. And that sometimes has a process of discovery. Um, but if you, don't, if you work for someone that you don't agree with, get out of there because it, it, could, it could be bad. Um, but ultimately, you know, be, be happy to fix the copy machine if that's what you have to do, especially if you're young. And, and ultimately, your worth is by your – you define your worth by your willingness to work hard and find ways to make your team succeed. And if you can do that, you can be very, very successful in Washington. That is solid advice, and what a great way to wrap up this episode of 80 Proof Politics. John, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. And I want to thank Andy and the folks at Boxcar Tavern for hosting us. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of time to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.